Hello, one and all, and welcome to the Deft Punk Podcast. My name is Dan Power, and I'll be attempting to play the role of Starworthy host, with all the degrees of failure and success that come with it. So, I hear you ask, what's this Deft Punk malarkey all about? Good question, and it's one I found myself pondering as the new year rolled onto the horizon. I began scribbling down a few notes, followed by a few more, and before I knew it, I'd gone full-blown Jerry Maguire, and had a document somewhat resembling a mission statement, the contents of which I'm gonna read for you right now. Deft. Demonstrating skill and cleverness. Punk. Characterised by the adoption of aggressively unconventional behaviour and the defiance of social norms. Alone, they're useful adjectives, complementary even given the right context. Together, however, that's where the magic begins to take hold. Together, just like us, they're stronger. No longer just a cool way to describe a thing, a person, or a style. Together, they form the basis for a way of thinking wholly at home in this brave new world of ours. If technology has indeed liberated us from the chains that bound our parents and their parents before them, it has done so by giving us the tools to approach this modern world in a more intelligent way. Do it deft. Be smart in all that you do, because when you're clever with your actions, you're more efficient, productive, and overall more effective. But keep it punk, too. In 2017, more so than in any other year, the future really does beckon, and with it, so too does opportunity. No more so than ever does it pay to approach your life in ways that even a decade ago would have been classified as being aggressively unconventional. From the stars of YouTube making millions in their bedrooms with little more than an entry-level camera, to the digital nomads conducting their business affairs from anywhere in the world willing to offer them a decent Wi-Fi connection. We live in an age where societal norms are falling by the wayside, and in their place rests an entire branch of low-hanging fruit just waiting to be picked. Here at Def Punk, we'll be shining a light on the people shaping this new world. The trailblazers unafraid to ask why, and indeed, why not? And we'll ask the questions that matter to you. Let us assume the role of Pearl Diver, unearthing the secrets, tips, and strategies that have served our guests so well, and let us give them to you to harness for yourselves. Hopefully that sounds like a proposition worth tuning in for. So, with that in mind, do it deft, and keep it punk. And back to me! Hopefully that didn't come across as being too preachy, I do so hate talking in my reading voice all the time. So yes, there it is, the Deft Punk Podcast a show where we'll basically ask people stuff, and hopefully that stuff will be of some interest to you guys. Guest one is none other than Farah Store, who is the editor of Cosmo UK. Farah took over Cosmo around about a year ago and was tasked with turning around a magazine whose sales had been in steady decline for a good long while. In the space of just a few months, she turned it into the best-selling women's glossy in the country, and we talk about how she did that in our conversation. Farah also oversaw the hugely successful launch of the UK edition of Women's Health, and just a couple of months ago, she gave a truly fantastic TED talk over at Covent Garden entitled The Leadership Revolution We All Need. Now, at this point, before I cut to the interview itself, I'm going to go ahead and apologise on my part for the, uh, the low energy levels that you might bear witness to over the course of our little chat as we both make clear from the get-go, both myself and Fara were struggling through two pretty vicious cases of winter flu, but we resolved to carry on through it, and, you know, as they say, the show, it must go on. So, yeah, with that in mind, here it is, episode number one. 
Okay, hi, Flora. Thanks for joining us for the inaugural episode of the Deaf Punk Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very stuffy, though, so you'll have to excuse me. I, I, I already hate the sound of my own voice, as does everybody, because it's very nasal, but today there's just like a, a fog of, of nasalness. Okay, I think I'm, I'm suffering from that same fog, so we'll struggle on regardless, All right. and, and let's jump into it. So, for those that don't know, can you tell us a bit about who you are? And rather than just giving us the box standard intro... I would like to ask, if you were tasked with writing your own Wikipedia entry, what might the first paragraph about you say? Oh, okay. So if you were to go to my Wikipedia page, most people write their own Wikipedia pages anyway. (laughs) Um, Forrestor is a editor and writer, though mostly a failed writer. Um, who was born in Salford in 1978. She's the current editor of Cosmopolitan um, in the UK and is best known there for trying to insert jokes into every bit of copy. The something like the phrase she is most known for is make it something like this, but not this, <laughs> which infuriates all of my team because they're like, well, if it's not this, what is it? And I will, well, go, go and seek. No, that's nice. I mean, I think you suffer from that quintessential British trait of not being able to sell yourself with any degree of real uh, get up and go, but it was nice. Oh, that, that's part of the British charm. Okay, so uh, like you said, you've overseen the successful launch and relaunch of two magazine projects now, but what does the journey look like that got you to where you are today? Like, how did you start in your industry and, you know, what have been the, the key moments in your professional ascent? Well, I, I never wanted to be a journalist, to be honest, because my sister was a journalist. She worked on a, a magazine called More Magazine. And I, well, I, I, do you know, I, I was reject. I think one of the big things that had a huge effect on me was from the age of 14, I got it into my head that I wanted to go to Oxford. And I essentially from kind of 14 to almost 18 or 17 and a half, it would have been before I did the Oxford entrance exam and interview. I did everything in my power. You know, I studied. I was, I was kind of very devout. I didn't go out. I was on a mission. Um, and I don't know where that came from, to be completely honest. It was a kind of drive, an internal drive that I had. And and, and I remember when I when I turned up to Oxford, I, I'd chosen a college based on when I when I looked at the brochure. It was just a very pretty college. And when I got there, I discovered um, that actually the kids that were applying for for the university were very unlike me. So they were, I, I'd gone to a private girls school and then for the, I did my A-levels at a mixed comp and everyone there was privately educated, public school educated actually, which is absolutely fine, but I felt very different and I, I, I didn't get in. At Oxford have this brilliant thing or they used to have this brilliant thing where you get your rejection letter like two days before Christmas. And I remember I was absolutely devastated that I didn't get in. And I, and I thought this is probably going to mark the rest of my life. It showed that I wasn't in some ways excellent. So that had a bit of a big effect on me. So after that, I, I went to King's College University in London and my sister at the time was a journalist and she was also in London. So what I did was I studied French and English there. And at the same time, I did a lot of work experience at magazines because the thing about work experience on magazines, and I wish it was different, is it's not paid. So it's very difficult if you are a kid from 
Manchester from Salford like me if you're living up north to do internships so I was lucky in that I was at university but then whenever I could because obviously we never had many lectures I went and interned at magazines and I remember I was kind of terribly superior at the time I thought all they did on magazines was go to parties I think that was just more magazine actually <laughs> um, and so I did all of this this um, all this work experience for kind of three years and then when I graduated I decided I didn't want to be a journalist because I thought it was all pretty vacuous and I went to be uh, I worked in marketing for a year a year and a half and I was utterly utterly miserable and so you know I, I remember I remember I basically part of my job was it's kind of marketing slash sales I had to sell these health drinks um you know I'd, I'd, I'd turn up to shops and say look do you want to buy these drinks they're, they're miraculous blah 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 and uh, I hated it I was absolutely miserable and I remember just sitting one day um um, near Leicester Square and I had this big uh, tray of drinks I was carrying around with me and I was like do you know what don't resist um, journalism anymore because I loved writing but my problem was the lifestyle that I thought journalists had so anyway um, it's a very roundabout way of explaining that when I was 23 so I was a little bit older a job came up as a features assistant on a women's magazine and I was really lucky because I'd done so much work experience I had a book in those days you had a book of work to show um, and I got the job and, and it kind of all started from there. I worked my way up over the last, wow, I'm 38 now. So kind of, what is that, 15 years, 16 yeah, years? Yeah, so good. You've, you've earned your stripes. Um, working across all women's magazines and, and some papers. I, I had a stint in Australia for four years, which, you know, I think I made a lot of, I always say to my husband because he came with me then, I think we made a lot of our mistakes actually in Australia. Um, and people always make, mistakes in their career but the wonderful thing about Australia was it's kind of it was in a, it was in a different place so well, that's interesting when you say mistakes do you mean professional mistakes yeah I, I, as... I think well I think I was learning my craft I think sometimes and I've, I've spoken about this in a in a TED talk that I did I, I I I jumped around from job to job because I wanted to get to the top very quickly and I thought that was the way you behaved and I think some jobs perhaps I wasn't ready for and one of those jobs was in was in Australia um, and and I, I I would say hand on heart that I failed at one of my jobs out there not kind of spectacularly but I, I wasn't a particularly I wasn't as good as I thought I was I think I think when you've got a 10 year distance from from something um, I remember this job at the time I thought it was everybody else's fault apart from mine and and it, it was whilst it was a difficult working environment I think probably I wasn't ready for the job and I, and I think it takes years and perspective sometimes to realize that and so yes yeah, so then we came back to England and I launch Women's Health. Which, I mean, just to, to go back to Australia for a second, do you feel that it was beneficial for you to have that kind of safe environment to, you know, use as a proving ground for your failures? I mean, like you said, it was kind of Australia's a bit of a bubble. I don't think Australia is a bubble, actually. I think a lot of people think Australia is this tiny country in the middle of nowhere. And whilst geographically it is, actually, it's... Um, journalism out there is is incredibly competitive some of my favorite writers are australian but i think i think just having the geographical distance i think from from mistakes that i made out there i mean look they weren't terrible mistakes I, I took on a job probably that i shouldn't have taken on on a magazine which was famous for being quite difficult which is right i think all jobs should be difficult and i think maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was at, at the time, you know, and, and it's only recently I was saying to my husband, I said, you know, when I look back on that job and I was, I was very miserable there. And the other thing is, of course, is I think it's really important to know what it feels like to be in an utterly miserable job, a, a job that kind of changes the colour of everything when you're getting home and you are still 
thinking in kind of you know blacks because your job is so hideous I think it is important for people to know what that feels like so that when you have a job which is tough you know the difference between a very difficult job that is probably difficult to get out of and a job which is just tough and that that you'll you'll work through exactly gives perspective I suppose and and you can only earn that perspective once you've been through you got to go. Yeah, you have got to go through it. But there is a difference, you know, there is a difference between going through something tough because I'm a big believer in tough experiences. You know, you do need a little bit of stress. You know, it, it helps with mental sharpness, with clarity. Um, you know, there are numerous studies which show that rats brains enlarge after small, only small amounts of stress. I mean, chronic yeah. stress obviously is a terrible thing. It's the difference um, between good stress and bad stress. So yeah, is, exactly. But conversely, I think you need to know when something is a is a bad job which is not a right fit for you you know so uh, I'm, I think it is important to have gone through something like that. So with that in mind what was it that was the kind of tipping point for you that made you decide we're going to move back to England having worked in Australia? Um... I mean on this on you know on that same point you know when you, you spent this time in Australia you came back and then you jumped into a huge job in, in launching Women's Health which you know didn't even exist at the time which is interesting given that you had taken on a job that you didn't feel you were ready for what do you think had changed that made you ready to take on well, such a big undertaking? I had lots of jobs in between that so the job that I that that was a tricky job in Australia actually after that, I, I took on another job in Australia, which I was incredibly happy at, which was um, no longer exists, but it was a kind of fashion magazine called Madison, and, and I really came into my own there. And after that, actually, we came back to Australia for personal reasons, actually, and so the pull of home was, was too great. So it was personal reasons that brought us back. And, and you know, when I, when I came back to England, it was hard because, you know, I didn't have a job to come to, so I, I, ended, working, I ended up working on a, a health magazine, which was not really my area of expertise, um, even though I've always loved fitness and, and health. And I was there for a year when, as invariably these things happen, I heard that the, the job of, of women's health came up. And so then, of course, I was I was quite well placed to take the job. But it, it, it wasn't the most seamless transition because women's health was a startup. It was a tiny team. Budgets were small and they needed me to start immediately. So actually, mm. I had to walk out of the job that I was in to to take women's health and you know there were no there was no guarantee that women's health was going to be a success you know in order for it to launch properly we had to reach a certain target we had to sell i think over a hundred thousand copies which is an enormous amount back in 2012 um well even now i think it's it's... even now even now it's a huge amount um yeah so that was that was probably i think that was probably one of the riskiest things that i've ever done in my career actually I'm just curious, do you think, you know, having those those sales figures at the forefront of your mind during the launch, did that kind of pressure cooker type environment help spur you on? Or, or do you feel, so for instance, with your current position in Cosmopolitan and a similar kind of, these are the numbers that we have to hit. I mean, it's all almost similar to when you're in sales and you have to hit your targets in terms of, of, of reaching goals that way. I mean, do you, do you think that's a good way of working? Do you like working that way? Uh, no, I think if you're a creative, you don't like working that way. I don't think targets and numbers, they don't really mean much to, to people who are, uh, you know, I say in inverted commas, creatives. But I think with women's health having, I mean, look, I, I think I wasn't, I don't think about the numbers and I never do. And I say that to all my team now, don't think about the numbers, just just put out the 
best possible work you can put out and the numbers will then come i think if you think the other way around it doesn't quite work because you know magazines are are not a formula i think some people think that you know if you do if you start with this sentence and have this middle paragraph and have this picture it's going to work magazines and writing and journalism it it doesn't work like that. There aren't algorithms. No. I mean, one of the editors I used to work with, Lorraine Candy, who is at Elle, said, you know, magazine editors are walking algorithms. And that is our job is to, to instinctively know or to have a gut feeling about what women want to read. Having numbers hanging over you like the sort of Damocles, the only thing that really does, I suppose, is, um, yes, there is a slight bit of, of pressure exerted. And, and I think to the point earlier having a little bit of pressure exerted can force you to be creative in perhaps ways that ordinarily you might not be if you were just yeah you know in in your comfort zone exactly brilliant and you know women's health was a huge success i mean you won best new editor of the year yes it's like a very long time ago yes (laughs) and then from that used it as a springboard to move to cosmopolitan which um, you've also now had a very successful rebrand and relaunch almost i suppose you could say do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the state of the magazine for those that didn't know when you took it over and where you're up to now yeah, so I was at Women's Health for four years. We we were, I think we were the most successful women's magazine launch of the last 10 years. And I was very, very happy there. And actually, I remember someone said to me, do you think you'll be, you know, what would you want to edit next? And I said, actually, I don't think I do want to be an editor again. I think I want to probably work in fitness or open a, a boutique fitness studio. I think that was where my mind was set when I was at Women's Health. Yeah, you'd really bought into the... Yeah, the, the, lifestyle, the lifestyle, and, and I think the wellness arena is, is fascinating. And yeah, and, and then the, the Cosmopolitan opportunity came along. And, you know, I think what what we had to do with Cosmopolitan, we had to change it. We had to change it a little bit. We had to rework the formula because, you know, the magazine was, was good. It was good journalism. But I think there was a feeling that the environment now for magazines is very difficult and when people come into my office, when we have interns, they go, oh, should I go into magazine journalism? Because lots of people have told me you're wasting your time. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think if you love magazines and you love writing long form journalism, it is it is the best place to be. However, you need to decide what publication you're on. And I think I think in, in a time where, you know, everything is digital first and there are so many you know so many options and places where you can get information for free and pretty good information now actually i think a few years ago the information you were getting online was not nowhere near the quality you're getting in in um in magazines or newspapers but uh i've completely lost my train of thought but anyway so with cosmopolitan (laughs) it's it's a hot it's a harsher environment and so we needed to think how are we going to reach women between because you know our core readership had always been kind of 20 right up to 50 but those women in their 20s we weren't reaching anymore Mm. and it's because they were going to free publications or they were going online for their information or actually they weren't even looking for information they were on snapchat or they were on social media um the climate completely changed i suppose that's yeah so it's like how do you how do you make a product which to some people i mean if you're in your 20s have not grown up with magazines it's an obsolete product in some ways how do you get them to engage with that and so we i mean really actually it's my my ceo anna jones who who came up with this idea of well we're going to cut the price we're going to make it a pound and actually i think that's very cheap for a quality publication but 
I think in a time where everything is free, it's probably fair. I think it's very difficult if you're in your 20s to spend almost £5 on a magazine. Now. Yeah, exactly. I think most people that go to the magazine rack now, and when they are faced with the you know rising magazine prices close to £5, and you know that you can get similar kinds of information online, it, it really is not much of a decision to make. So. No, and you know, young people don't have much money anymore. You know, £5 is a lot of money. So, so we changed the price, and we also um, did something called dynamic distribution, which is we physically well we changed the distribution model so for example now cosmopolitan you'll still find us in supermarkets and corner shops but the reality is most people most young women don't do the big supermarket shop anymore so if they're living with their parents their parents are going into the supermarket they're not going into you know when i was growing up you ran to your corner shop to go and buy your copy of cosmopolitan they don't do that anymore yeah those halcyon days are long gone yeah they're they're, they're gone but they are working women and they are going pat they are going into tesco metro to buy their groceries or they are going past wh smith travel and so we we're very very visible in all of those outlets we also give away a certain number of magazines um, every month. I think it's about 90,000. And again, it's, um, you know, we don't just hand them out on the streets to anyone. What we do is it's very targeted. So we, um, if you go to Manchester Airport, you will find copies of Cosmopolitan at gate number 48 on a Friday evening, which is the gate, which is the flight going to Ibiza. Um, You'll find us in gyms, but only in certain urban gyms where we know there is a there is a large split of women. Um, we're in certain workplaces again, where we know the where we know there's a large proportion of young women. So it's very very targeted, and what it essentially is doing is kind of physically putting the magazine into young women's hands. Um, we're also we've done this at the Trafford Centre in Manchester. We do it in Westfield. We've done it in the Bullring. We do an event every month with the magazine. So if you go into a shopping centre on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, you will see Cosmopolitan's being handed out, but also a big cosmopolitan area where you can have your picture taken on the cover you can share it across social and i think that's the way to do it actually you know sometimes the members of the team will be there i think consumers now want to kind of touch and feel and speak and interact with um the magazine which which is right so it it was a complete the distribution model change and also what i did with the magazine i felt had to change as well i think we had to move on a little bit from what perhaps cosmopolitan had been with naked centerfolds and you know, um, sex positions, because I honestly believe if you want to, that there's a lot of places who are doing sex content on the internet, which probably a magazine can't compete with. So yeah. we changed quite a lot of the fundamentals, a lot of the sacred cows I got rid of, and, and we just made it a bit more... A bit more current, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's much more of a time. And, you know, it's that buzzword at the minute. It's it's that engagement factor that it feels like your, your marketing and targeting marketing has, has really tried to go after. Because it is more about having a dialogue with, with your readers now. That's why, you know, the blog and, and you know, social media has really changed the way that people yeah. process and get their information. And it's obviously worked because now Cosmopolitan is the best-selling women's magazine in the country. Is that right? Uh, women's Glossy, um, Good Housekeeping, where I had one of my first jobs still. At, does outsell us just marginally but yes we've had we've had terrific success and and the beauty of it is we've brought back those women in their 20s but we've still kept the women in their 50s and so it's a balancing act but yeah so far so good and in a climate of sales decline in magazines you've managed to actually raise sales figures so i was wondering what do you think has made you able to be able to do that oh i wish i knew the answer to that i mean i 
it's very difficult to answer that question without blowing your own trumpet, really. I, You're I allowed to blow your own trumpet. No, though. and actually, do you know what? I, 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 um, I think it's just it's that terrible cliche answer of making sure you pick the right people to work with you. You know, someone once said to me, if you've got a pyramid structure in your team, so if you've got you at the top and you've got at least two other people, even if everyone else, you know terrible or you don't have anyone else if you have that pyramid structure that very stable structure then it's going to work and at women's health actually i only had three people and it worked i mean obviously the, the team did increase um, after the first two issues i'm very lucky at, at cosmopolitan in that you know unfortunately when i joined the magazine a lot of people left and i've talked at length about what that's like so i i essentially had to start from scratch but the team that i've built are are really excellent and, and really do it for the love you know i i think when you're employing people, you know, there's all this talk at the moment about, you know, AI soon is going to be, I think they may have started it, certain are going to be recruiting for people because mm. what they do is they that they're, they're it's an impersonal, it's an impartial interview. But actually, I do think you need an emotional connection with people when you're interviewing them. And everyone that I've interviewed and everyone that is on my team now, they are people that I get on with. And I think that that's really important. I think a lot of the time when you you're looking for people you have a checklist of, of, of the things that you want but at the end of the day you've got to want to do business with people and especially in magazines where you are you know the salaries are not huge they will never be huge the hours are long you often have to work out you know you often work at weekends a lot of my team work at weekends but they don't do it because they have to you know i work pretty much every weekend but it's because i like writing it's, it's because you love what you do and so i think when you're interviewing it's really important you know do you like this person I'm not saying you have to be best friends with them, but I'm saying, do you like them? Do you want to do business with them? Yeah, and I think that's what, I mean, I've watched your TEDx talk, which is fantastic and, and everyone should search out. But it's very interesting that the kind of leitmotif of that is that it was called uh, the, the leadership revolution we need, right? Yes, that's right. And I'm, I'm wondering how you feel your leadership style has impacted the success of your magazines and how much of that do you put down to the people around you? You know, the process that you've, you've used based on the two magazines that you've worked for in going forward with projects. Well, I think you have to hire people who have skills that you don't. So, you know, I have a brilliant deputy editor who I would say is is probably more empathetic than me. So she is very much kind of rallies the team together. She she notices blind spots. Perhaps I don't emotional blind spots. If someone's having a difficult time, she'll raise it with me. I have people who are pushier than me. I have a brilliant features director who she won't mind me saying her name's Amy Greer and she she's pushy she's really good she you know if I send her to an event she will make sure that she gets the questions asked that she needs to you need those people as well so I don't think you should hire when I'm saying you you should hire people you get on with or what I want to I should rephrase it you should hire people you respect or you would respect as a friend in, in, in another life but I think they should also be very different to you as well because everybody has got blind spots and I think, first of all, you need to acknowledge what your blind spots are. So I think it's a very good, I think if you can bear to do it, actually, you should always ask a colleague you're very close to, what are your blind spots? And again, that's quite a difficult thing to do, but I think it's very important. And once you know what those blind spots are, you should try and hire people who actually excel in those areas. Um, and so that's what, what we've done with the Cosmopolitan team. Whether that's helped us um, be so successful, I don't know. I mean, you know, we, we create, I think, excellent content that excites people that I believe other people are not doing. We exploit we exploit subjects that I don't think the internet are doing, which is why I will give 2,000 words to a feature on young women soliciting for sex in saunas. Yeah. That's just an interesting cultural 
a phenomena that's happening and, and I think only in Cosmopolitan really or perhaps a documentary um, on TV will will you get the level of detail which is required to understand why that's happening. But yeah, we just, we, we you know, if, if people love what they do, it's a terrible cliche, you get great stuff out of people. Yeah, and I'm curious, because you're now in a position where you can hire people, what is it that you look for in them? I mean, again, going back to your TEDx talk, you said that, and you mentioned it earlier, that people that do hire generally, they do have this checklist of things that they look for in people. It's the go-getters, it's the people that aren't afraid to stand up and ask questions. But of course, in your TEDx talk, you, you mentioned that you kind of threw that out of the window when it came to building your team. So is there something that you look for in people now aside from you know the skills that you're looking to complement your own i mean i'm not saying abandon your checklist keep it in the back of your mind it's just don't keep to it rigidly you know i hire people that i like i you know i spend most of my working day more time than i do my husband i spend with these people so you have to like them Mm. i look for people who have a good knowledge of the craft that they want to go into um, you know, I've interviewed people who you can tell have not even read, have turned up and have not read the latest issue. I look for people who are good on detail, actually. And i tell you why that is. I was saying to someone in my team recently, I'm a real stickler for, for punctuality. And I think as you as you move up the ranks, I think when you're junior, and I was very guilty of this, you think the small things, so turning up five or ten minutes late or turning up to a meeting without a pen, You think these are the things that senior people don't notice. And actually, my feeling is it's the opposite because senior people, by and large, don't have much on a day-to-day. They don't have much day-to-day dealing with junior members of the team. I mean, I try and talk to my junior member of the team as much as I can, but the reality is you're so busy you don't. And so what you do pick up on is the small things. If you're only seeing them in a meeting and they don't have their pen or they don't have any paper or if they're turning up late... Those are the things you notice. And actually, I think the small things when you're in when you're a kind of senior manager, you think are indicative of um, that person's behavior yeah, of course. in general. So one thing I would say is the really, really small things you need to be hot on. You, you really do. And, and, and it is it's that attention to detail, which I've always been a stickler for. That is far more important than you think actually yeah it's that you've got five minutes to impress someone basically it's um, yeah you don't have a lot of face time with with the higher ups if you like so yeah use that five minutes wisely yeah use it wisely but but also just make sure that every you know every t is crossed and every i is dotted because that's the thing actually that people look for if you come in you've got five minutes and you dazzle me with a, a project that's great but but make sure that you know I don't know, you've come in dressed appropriately or make sure that you've read the magazine or make sure that, you know, you didn't, you weren't rude to the person in reception because all those things, and and the reality is you should be behaving this way anyway. But we have had instances of of people we've interviewed in the past and, 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 and the detail is just slightly off. And as a manager, that worries me because if you're not hot on the small things, then I, it raises concerns, I suppose, about what you would be like over bigger things rightly or wrongly okay so there is a lot of talk at the minute about millennials in the workplace and they're getting quite a lot of flack i suppose from a lot of different areas of the media i was just curious to find what your uh, experience of working with this millennial crowd has been address this idea that they are problematic to work with is that have you found that to be true or do you feel they're just it's, it's the next step in a generation 
I think, well, first of all, I get really annoyed when people say, oh, millennials, they group them all together. Millennials is kind of 18 to 34. So that's a huge swathe of people. So I I think a lot of these people that, that talk about, oh, millennials, they're so entitled, etc. I don't agree with that. You may have had an experience with a few entitled millennials or millennials, a few, you know, entitled young men and women. No, and, and I actually think millennials, um, they've got it really, really hard. I mean... I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, the boomers. I mean, the boomers had it hard in, in, in some ways. But, you know, if you were a young 20-something growing up in the 60s, there was lots of public funding for the arts. You know, you could you could sign on and you could start a band. And, and, and so a lot of wonderfully creative things um, happened in the 60s. It was this very fruitful era. If you were growing up in the 60s, I mean, my parents, for example, the reality is you could have um, a one, you know, a one-parent income and mum could stay at home or dad but obviously you know in, in when I was growing up it was mum could stay at home you could afford to have a a big house you could afford to have a car or, or two cars you could go on one holiday yeah that is not an option open to what we call millennials nowadays and, and even me you know I'm generation x so for us um you know we were slightly more doom and gloom but I think millennials have got it really really difficult there is probably no hope of, of, of ever owning your own property the idea of a pension is is in, insane actually most young millennials now are thinking well we'll, we'll invest or we'll invest in property but then how do you invest in property when exactly. you can't get on the yeah you can't get on the property ladder we live in this you know this thing we call the gig economy uh, you know we talk about oh well, they've got these portfolio careers they can do whatever they want these are careers without any security there is no job for life for these young men and women anymore nobody is looking after them and so actually i think conversely what you do get with millennials and and i employ a lot of millennial uh, men and women is they are very ambitious which may come across to some people as pushy Mm -hmm. but they are um they are self-seeking but I think naturally so because you know the company's not going to look after them, so they need to look out. You know they need to look out for and after themselves. Um, and what comes from that is incredible creativity. I think the only thing I would say which worries me a, a little bit about this generation, and again I was talking to um, my mother-in-law actually about this, was we live. You know the economy often dictates the mood of a generation and 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 the feelings and the mindset of a generation and. My only worry is, I mean, when I, she obviously was a, a baby boomer and she grew up in the 60s and we talked about, you know, why were the 60s so fruitful? Why have all these, you know, wonderful actors and, and musicians and artists come from the 60s? And it's because there was a lot of public funding for the arts. Now, now, of course, when people are creating arts, my feeling is they are doing it for the market. So they are creating art that people will buy. And so what my worry there is, is that people are not being truly creative. They're not truly listening to what they want to do. They're listening to the market. So they'll be creative, but they know they need to sell their product at the end. And so my worry is, I think millennials have, have, have in some ways, they are, they're very smart. They are very ambitious, but I worry that they don't get to realise their full potential because this pressing issue of financial security is such a burden to them. Every decision they make is actually swayed by Will it offer me security? Will I make money from it? Yeah, and it, that, that, I suppose that really constricts the the, the creative process. Actually, process. Yeah, yeah. of course. Wow, well, that's, that's a nice, insightful look into uh, the millennial demographic that I don't think many people are addressing uh, in, in the same way. I love millennials, and you know that there's a whole younger 
a whole younger kind of what we call them zillennials coming through as well. They they are a fascinating generation. Okay, well, moving on then. Future projects for Cosmo and yourself. Um, what's on the horizon for Far Restore in 2017? Um, well, hopefully. Um, I will still be at Cosmopolitan. What we're going to do with the magazine, um, and I should mention, we're incredibly popular. We're not just a magazine anymore. Obviously, we do events. We're on Snapchat Discover, which is 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 a really interesting way for us to bring in a whole new audience, younger audience. But my big thing is, I think I touched upon earlier, is about getting Cosmopolitan out there into society, and 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 more than that, it's about you know Cosmopolitan. When you go back to the sixties and seventies. It was about celebrating, yes, sexual emancipation, but also about women and careers. And so on to my point about millennials and and being self-starters. There are two things that we're doing in 2017. One is a while back I was trying to recruit for a junior writer on the magazine. And I remember I had so many applications and the applications were all the same sort of young men and women. And there was nothing wrong with it, but they were all Southern they were all from a, a slightly more privileged background and absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, but the problem was, of course, is because these are the only kids who could really afford to live in London or they could stay with their parents and, and, and take this junior writer's job. And we had a real dearth of applications from young men and women from the north, those from perhaps a lower socioeconomic background. And that's a problem for a magazine like Cosmopolitan, which reaches everyone really we are not in any way um defined by a certain class of of, um of woman um and so i remember saying to my features director we need to do something about this you know how wouldn't it be amazing if we could house young women so they could you know if if there was a job down in the south because the reality is a lot of the creative jobs are still centered around london that's the reality i wish it wasn't that way but it is um particularly in the media I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could house um, kind of 20 young women for a year um, and that would give them a year to do their first starter job and then we can kind of send them on their way. And that's exactly what we've done. We've partnered with a property guardian um, ship uh, called Dot 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 Property. Um, essentially what they do is they um, they find um, vacant property around London which, you know, would usually be landlords would be worried about squatters, etc. So what they do is while these um, buildings are empty, sometimes waiting for demolition or usually renovation, um, dot, 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 actually get in vetted, excellent tenants. And a lot of these properties are in brilliant centrally located um, London postcodes um, where people can walk into work. So we are just in the process now. We found a building, we hope. Um, in central London, which will have 20 rooms where we are, we're going through the applications at the moment. We've asked um, women and men actually can, can apply, of course, across the country. Do they have a job to come down to London or do they need to be in London for work? Um, and we will house them. And all we ask is that they um, they donate. I think it's four hours a week we're asking. So it's this virtuous circle, um, hopefully. And then the, the other thing we're doing is we've got a big career summit happening um, in the spring, which will be a whole day down in London at County Hall, um, where there'll be talks and there'll be workshops, but also we will be doing a kind of Dragon's Den style pitch as your business idea. And we will probably be able to offer to two or three young women um, an office space in central London 
for um, working on how long for at the moment, but I would have thought a minimum of six months in this incredible location where they can get their business off the ground. So I think it's a very long way of answering that question, but the point is it's like magazines. Yes, they're about entertainment, but they were always about changing lives and they used to do that through, you know, agony ant columns. Well, what's the new agony ant column? The new agony ant column is actually is being able to come down to London to meet the editor of the magazine you read and for that editor to actually be able to help you. Of course. You know, find somewhere to live, get a job. That's what people need and want. So so fingers crossed that that's what's happening in 2017. It's a massive undertaking. But No, it sounds um, fantastic. And certainly uh, I think it's great to see uh, an editor really taking that responsibility, that social responsibility by the scruff of the neck and, and doing something positive with it and affording change in an arena that you're in. And, and yeah, I think it, that's, that's fantastic. Sounds very, very exciting. Thank you. Okay, so moving on now, as we wrap up this uh, little chat, um, just some quick higher questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay, so what is the single best piece of advice you've received? Ooh. Um, Not even professionally, just, you know, in your in your lifetime. Well, I don't think I've, uh, there's anything particularly succinct to tell you, but one thing that I... And I can't remember where I heard it... It was. It's the idea that if if something is tough, it's the idea of, of, of pushing through it. And it's like I, I said earlier about, you know, there, there is a difference between something being impenetrably tough and something just being tough. You kind of going through a bit of turbulence. I think turbulence is a good thing. I think it can accelerate learning, um, you know, that that whole idea of, of forcing yourself into your discomfort zone. Um, is probably the best thing that you can do for your career, not just for your career, actually, for... Um, personal growth in for, itself. For personal growth, yeah. I think every, every um, everything fruitful that I've had in my life, from how I met my husband to my career, has come from forcing myself into a difficult situation. And I think, uh, again, it's not a succinct piece of advice, but it's like people need to be comfortable with how it feels to be put under a little bit of pressure. It's not a bad thing, actually. You know, what, what you should be doing is rather than feeling fear, fear and excitement are very, um, are yeah, very, very similar feelings. Related, yeah. So if you can kind of, what I try to do before I do a speech or anything, it's rather than think, oh my God, I'm really scared. You try and convert that in your head and go, actually, I feel very excited by this. Um, get used to the idea of what a little bit of pressure feels like, because actually it's a good thing. It can be a good thing. Yeah. And in that same vein, I was going to say, is there a piece of advice that you personally find yourself giving out to people time and time again? But I imagine that that is that piece of advice. Yeah. And it's it's pushed through it because on the other side is where the greatness happens. Cool. And and to finish up, you know, we've been talking a lot about work. Just uh, what does relaxation look like to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to write. Actually, it's not so relaxing at the moment. I've got a book coming out <laughs> next year. So I have got to write that, which actually is all about... Um, discomfort and, and pressure it's very simple I you know I work very hard Monday to Friday but at the weekends we live out in the country now we've got two very big dogs and we go for walks me and my husband and we talk um, and that for me is, is the best way to relax I like gardening I want to get into gardening much more I've got a, a nice garden which has a lot of potential and I exercise you know for me that's kind of pure joy is is to exercise Fantastic. Okay, well, I think that just about wraps it up. I think we've battled through the the fog, collective fog that we're both suffering from. So thank you. The so nasal much. fog. Nasal fog, um, <laughs> yes. as, as glamorous as that sounds. So thank you so much for joining us, Farah. Very welcome. And yeah, where can people find you if they want to keep an eye on what you're doing and what you're up to in the magazine? 
well, uh, Twitter. I'm very active on Instagram, although it's mainly pictures of, of me and my dogs out walking. Um, and yes, the magazine, obviously, it's it's still only a pound. Um, so make sure you, you pick it up. OK, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it. I sincerely hope you enjoyed listening. And if you'd like to keep up to date with all the Deft Punk goings on we have scheduled for this year, then please head over to the website, which is www.thedeftpunk.co.uk. Or alternatively, you can find us on Twitter at The Deft Punk. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, do it deft, keep it punk. <laughs>